Welcome to the Kingdom Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jamie Dixon. For more great content, visit klcmaine.com. We, uh, we are going to be uh, jumping into here. We're going to be jumping right into our first, uh, uh, first part of our new sermon series, Radical Generosity. Uh, tonight, we're doing the war on shame. Last week was so powerful, guys. It was so Good, and so I really want to encourage you to come tonight, be there, um, and you can catch it online. It, we typically don't stream those, but it's just so powerful that I just said, who cares, just stream it, but I, there's something about being in the room, so be there. It's going to be uh, really good, and today we get into Radical Generosity Part 1, and um, you know, as we get into this, I, I prayed and prayed and prayed um, at the beginning of the year, Lord, what are some of the key cornerstone messages that you are building? Like, I mean, so when, you, when, you, when a church takes a portion of time, it's because God's creating something in that community. And, and I, I feel like we're shaping something in our culture over the next few weeks together. And every time that we've done this, what the Lord showed me at the beginning of the year, radical generosity is one of those things. But the other messages that we did, man, um, they've become real staple things in our community um, this year. And so we're going to get into part one of this. As we get into radical generosity, um, you know, wh- one of the things, I so this is not going to be a tithes and offerings sermon series. So this is, this is our tithes and offering sermon series. This is, uh, we will be using money as an example, but that's because uh, finances are a training ground for generosity. And uh, Jesus uses as an example, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And um, in another place, uh, he uses the parable of the 10 minas. And he tells, he tells about the story of a king who encourages, you know, gives 10 minas to three different men and says, I'm going to go away and whatever you do with this, I'll come back and I'll judge you for it. And one, you know, risked it all and he made 10 more and another, you know, was a little bit more subtle, but he only brought in five more. And then another one uh, buried in the ground and did nothing with it and he made zero. And the king came back and he told the, uh, he saw what they did and he looked at the one who made 10 more and he goes, because of what you did with 10 minas, I will now make you the ruler of 10 cities. And he goes down the line and says, he who is faithful with little is given much. And there's something about that. How many of you guys know that he who is faithful with little is given much? It's not just about money, but he uses finances as an example to say, I'm creating a new way of living in this kingdom, and I'll use finances to get to your heart. Right? And, uh, and so over the next few weeks, I will use finances, but we're, we're moving past finances and we're going to get actually to a, a core identity message. Um, most of the time, generosity is usually defined by what we do with our excess resources. But how many of you guys know you could be, you could have $5 to your name, be one of the most generous people I've met, and you could be a millionaire and yet one of the most greedy individuals I've ever met. It's nothing to do with the amount that you have. It has everything to do with the way that you live from because generosity is not defined by what you have. Generosity is motivated from core essential beliefs that come from your identity. And that's what I want to get to today. And and, and our our way of doing that, week one, what we're going to start, start with, so buckle up, you ready? Week one, what we're going to be focusing on is in order to get to a culture or a identity of generosity, we're going to start by exposing and removing a spirit of poverty. Is that all right? 
We're going to evict a spirit of poverty that has been discipling the way that we live and we think and we operate. And, um, you know, this one of the reasons is if we, if we think generosity requires excess resources, then one of the things that we'll, we'll do is we'll make excuses that, oh, when I have enough, then I'll live this way. Or when, when this thing happens, then I'll start operating like this. But how many of you guys know that that is a he who is faithful with little is given much? And uh, excess is stewarded by our generosity of little until we're entrusted with abundance. God wants to give you more. And God wants to, to teach you how to steward more. But in order to do that, he will look upon the way that we're handling our little. And we're going we're gonna to get into that a little more. But how many of you know the cross didn't just change your destination? It didn't just change where you're going. It changed who you are. And who you are determines how you live. Not, not only did... Uh, Jesus changed your eternal destination and make a way into eternity for you. But how many of you guys know that he also, he re rewrote the way that you think. That now in your born again identity, you do not think the same way. Thank God for that. Can I get an amen? You are not who you used to be. You do not approach life the same way. You don't live the same way. You don't see each other, do relationship. You don't handle your finances. You don't handle your time. You don't handle your priorities. You don't handle your relationships. You don't, you don't raise your children maybe the way that you were raised. Why? Because your identity has changed everything because you are now born again. He's changed everything. You once were my enemy, but now you are an alliance to changing the world. And um, because of that, he, he took us from guilty and he made us righteous. Isn't that amazing? When you're guilty, you live in fear and you hide and you're waiting for the hammer to drop. But when you're living in righteous, you live with boldness. And he said, I took you from guilty and I made you righteous. He took you from the condemned to highly favored. He took you from a slave and he made you a son. These identity shifts are not just these small destiny changing things. They are, they've changed the way that you live your life. And one of the things that we have to understand and identify is that generosity is not just what you do with your resources. It's actually an understanding that you live from because when, when the father sent his son he, and he put his spirit inside of you and he started to change who you are, it was to make you like himself. And how many of you guys know the father spared no expense to purchase your life? that he actually poured out the most expensive offering. He, he poured out the blood of his one and only son and he put a bounty on your head and said, you are worth it. Yes. And he paid the ultimate price and he bankrupted heaven for you. He's a wildly generous, incredibly generous God. And, and Jesus then said, uh, he then turned to us and said, uh, there's no greater love than this and a man would lay down his life for his friends. And in another place, you know, someone's arguing, I get all these riches, what am I going to do? He says, he says, let the dead bury the dead, leave everything behind, put your hand to the plow and don't look back, pick up your cross and follow me daily. He's inviting us to live this laid down life where our life becomes an offering that's constantly poured at the feet of Jesus, saying, not my will, not my greatness, not my glory, but your glory and use my life in any way that I can pour it out, use my life for your glory. He's inviting us in to a radically 
generous life. And because of that, because this is such a core identity message, um, we're going we're gonna to hit this not from finances, not just from behavior, but we're going to hit this on a theological uh, identity level. We're going to be in Colossians 2. We're going to go 8 to 10, and then we're going to go uh, 13 to 19. You guys ready? Colossians chapter 2, that's your reading. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. says this, says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness, everyone say fullness, of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete. Everyone say complete. You are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. I love this. It says, don't let anyone deceive you with philosophies of man that, that, that binds you to the uh, vulnerability of your humanity. Um, th- this, is, this is important. The, the carnality of our life, the vulnerability of our life, the way that our whole world is collectively experiencing life, guess what? You're not like the rest of the world. You don't follow the same rules as the rest of the world. You know, I think that we got really used to saying, well, you know, we went through COVID. What a collective human experience. No, we didn't have the same experience. No, no, we didn't have the same experience because I was not living in the vulnerability of the clashing worlds around me. I was living in the safety and the security of a God who knows the beginning from the end. We're not living in the same experience. Now, no, now hold on. Does that take me away from compassion? Of course not. But one of the things we have to do is that we have to stop, we stop, have to, we have to stop bowing down to this like humanistic mindset that says that you have permission to experience life like the rest of the world. No, that's an empty human philosophy because you are complete in him. There's no lack inside of you. He is literally the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. You've been brought into perfect union with God through Jesus Christ and you now lack nothing. And don't let anyone come around and tell you that you are like the rest of the world. No, you're not. You are complete in Jesus Christ and you lack nothing. Don't let anyone cheat you through the philosophies and empty deceit and according to the traditions of man. This whole thing that we're all the same. No, we're not. I know that if you cut me open, we all bleed red. But I, I, am, I have the divine seed of the Godhead dwelling inside of me. I am not empty. I am full. I am not dirty. I have been made clean by the blood of Jesus. I am not the condemned. I'm the highly favored of God. I'm living an incredibly different life. Is that all right? And then he says this in verse 13. And now being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you of all your trespasses. You are forgiven of all your trespasses. And he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. I want you to think about this is this like this like line upon line of accusations of everything you've ever done that made you condemnable in the eyes of Satan. He wrote it all down. He kept record of you. And then it says and he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us that were contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. 
And then having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I want you to, I want you to, to get a picture of what's going on. It's gruesome. It's, 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 it's R-rated. There's this story of what's happening right now in, in Colossians chapter 2. Because what he's telling is this idea of, you know, every nation had a king. And when nation would war against nation, the victorious nation would take the opposing nation, their king, captive. And kings would array themselves in glorious uh, outfits and, and garments, kingly garments, so they would be respected above all. And, and, but when their army fell to the hands of an enemy, the enemy would capture the king and would actually take him as their crowning achievement. And the king would be taken captive and, and, and the, the victorious army would then parade the captive king through the streets and they would disrobe him and lead him like a dog saying, this was our enemy, look at him now. And everybody would come and clap and cheer knowing they're victorious and the opposing king was now in the hands of their nation. And this is a story that's being told right here is that there was another king over the, he's the king of the spirit of the age. His name was Beelzebub. He was a liar, thief. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And he'd been tormenting your life and your family and your city and your nation for generations. And this opposing king and all the hordes of hell and every demon from the pit of hell, every principality over cities and nations ruling over the, over the age and over the secular culture. He says, at the cross of Jesus Christ, he took every accusation against you, nailed it to the cross. And then he arrested this like this terrorist king that had been warring against your life. And he, he disrobed him of every garment of glory that he had. And he dragged him through the streets on a leash for you to see. Satan himself dragged naked through the streets in all of his vulnerability. And he disarmed principalities and powers. And he says, where is your oppressor now? This is what Jesus did at the cross of Jesus Christ. He exposed Lucifer as a lying, murderous king who had been disempowered, exposed, made vulnerable for all the nations to see. That's what happened. And he goes, you've been forgiven of all your trespasses. All of the accusations against you are gone. Every, every principality that's been warring against your life, has been disempowered. Do you understand that? Oh man, when Christians start going on this whole thing of like, well, there's the principality of this over me. Oh. <laughs> Greater is he that is in you than all the hordes of hell, baby. You got more power in your pinky than all the antichrists of hell. There's no principality more powerful than a praying church. If there's a principality that's in authority over Maine, it's because the church stopped praying. He goes, because of it's been triumphed, you're victorious. This lying terrorist king has been exposed. He's been dragged through the streets. He's been made a public, uh, uh, a, a public spectacle. He says, so. Everyone say, so. so. All of that to say this. So let no one judge you in food or drink. 
or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, all of these things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Jesus. Now, let me explain this to you. This isn't just about like, about what you drink and all that. All of these behaviors were old covenant behaviors that defined your righteousness. And there is this like idea and thought that if you did this Sabbath and you did this thing and you did this, then you would be made righteous. And, and he's saying your behavior doesn't make you righteous. Jesus made you righteous. So don't let anyone judge you in religious things, in church attendance, in tithes and offerings, in Bible, in all these things. Don't let anyone judge you in behaviors. There's all of those things are a shadow, but the substance is Jesus. Why are those things a shadow? Because all of those were given as mandates to Israel, but all of them were prophetic images of Jesus. And so the Father stands. Think of think of of of, of creation in our life, like. Well, just humanity as a timeline, right? Linear. Jesus stands at the center of the timeline and God creates the earth and then the fall of man and then, and then, the, and then, and then the law gets put in place and Israel, the covenant with Israel and then all of these behaviors were prophetic behaviors that testify that there's a Messiah who's coming and he will be a slain lamb. So slay the lamb and sprinkle it on the mercy seat because this is what Jesus will do for, for all humanity is he will become the slain lamb. And I want you to celebrate this festival and that fe festival. And I want you to take a Sabbath rest because Jesus will become the Sabbath rest. And he gives all of these instructions in Israel. If you want to be righteous, fulfill the instructions. But how many of us know that when a light cast, uh, is, is shined on a subject, it casts a shadow, Right? The behaviors for righteousness were the shadow, but they were not Jesus. They were incomplete. They weren't the substance. Jesus was the substance. And when the substance came, there was no need to serve a shadow. Why? Because we have the substance. And what he's saying is, is that Jesus made you righteous. You don't have to perform for righteousness anymore. These things don't make you righteous. Jesus makes you righteous. So don't let anyone judge you in, 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 in acts and performance of religion. It's Jesus and only Jesus who is able to do this. Then he says this, so let no one cheat you of your reward. Let no one cheat you of your reward. This is the idea of going into a market. Has anybody ever been to like maybe a third world nation where you go to the market and you want to buy something, Africa or somewhere, and, and they come, they go, oh, it's, it's, it's real silver. And you go, really? Oh, my wife needs a real silver necklace from Mexico, right? And you're just like, whew. And there's like, oh, look, it has the certificate, it has everything. It's real silver. And you go, how much? And they go, $600. And you go, oh, I don't think I'm not going to pay $600. Okay, okay, talk to me. You know, and you start talking him down, you get it for 150 bucks, and you're just like, I got a deal. You go home and you bring it, you bring it to the, uh, the jeweler, and they go, Friend, this is nickel. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's tin, it's, it's, it's aluminum, it, it's, not, it's not silver. And you know that you paid for something of not of worth. He's saying, Let no one cheat you of your reward. Let no one sell you something that has no value. This whole religious idea that you have to earn the favor of God, that is sold as silver, 
but it comes out of being of no worth. Let no one cheat you as your reward. Taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding on the things which he, uh, he has not seen, vainly puffed up in the fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body uh, nourish and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that only comes from God. Let no one she re- reward. Colossians chapter two is being is the the believer is being warned of a philosophy a mindset and a spirit that, that, um, that wants to rob you and betray you and deceive you of the reward that Jesus purchased through his cross. That there is a spirit. It's a lying spirit. It, it, it has the image of godliness, but it's void of any power. It is an empty philosophy that is built around the carnality of man and not the accomplishments of Christ. And it wants to rob and deceive you of the full reward of what Jesus purchased at the cross. We're, we're gonna, um, this mindset, this is an accusatory spirit. It's a religious spirit. Now, I'm gonna use three terminology throughout the day. And, and here, let me explain it to you. I'm gonna use religious spirit and a spirit of poverty. These are the same spirit. And I'll explain why in a second. The religious spirit and the, and the poverty spirit is the same spirit. And, and they both are trying to disciple your mind into a poverty mindset. How many of you guys know that the revelation of Jesus changed your mindset to see life differently? Well, the spirit of religion and a, a poverty spirit wants to also disciple your mind to see everything through this lens and give you a mindset that thinks lack. A religious spirit is zeal motivated by lack. Let me explain. It's religious behaviors motivated by, by where you're failing. It's this idea of you need to get saved because hell is coming, not because Jesus is a reward. It is you need to pray because, uh, because uh, you need to pray fervently because your sin is so great. Not you need to pray fervently because you've been invited to co-labor with Jesus. It's z- religious zeal motivated by lack. I remember being in a, in a meeting and I had this dream. I was as a church that a friend of mine set up for me in, in California and I was going to preach the next day. And uh, I didn't know the pastor, never been there before, which is always a little weird, right? You're like, I don't know what I'm coming into, but it's like, it's a great church, it's a great church. So that night in the hotel room, I have a dream. And in the dream, uh, I'm in a festival of all these Christians and this, uh, uh, and, and this man stands up on a table and he starts pointing at every Christians and goes, You're a sinner. I saw what you did last week. And you're a sinner. You're going to hell. And this guy just starts raking everybody in the crowd and people are hiding their faces. And in the dream, I get so angry. And I'm looking around and everyone, the crowd is starting to disperse. And in the dream... I just get so ticked off. I climb up on the, uh, on the, the, the picnic table. And I tap him on the shoulder and I just knock him out. <laughs> just knock him right out in the dream. And I wake up from the dream and I go, God, what was that? And he goes, he goes well, this morning you're going to knock out the spirit of condemnation off this church. I go, awesome. So I get there and I meet the pastor, lovely enough man, and, and meet some of the people, kind of a poor congregation. And, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm just there in the front row and worship is going well. And, but people are on the front row and they're scream crying. And I'm thinking like we're worshiping Jesus and they're like scream crying and yelling, oh God. And I'm like, wow, what a fiery church. It's awesome. I, I love that. 
But then the pastor gets up and he goes, we're going to take an offering. And, uh, and, he start, and, he, and he starts talking about, he starts talking about giving how God will give you more. And he points this lady in the front row who had been weeping all through worship. He's going, God, I need you. He points to her and she says, Susie, uh, to emphasize his point, he goes, Susie, you know that, that if you had actually not stopped giving last year, you wouldn't have cancer in your body right now. That's what he says. And he goes, John, you remember last year when your trailer burned to the ground? He goes, I, I went back on the books and you had stopped giving for four weeks. The pastor starts calling everybody out. And people are, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I started realizing there's zeal in this house, but it's motivated from condemnation. And so I get invited up to preach and uh, I, um, I announce my intent. And guys, I, I knock that spirit out so flipping hard. <clears throat> I didn't get an honorarium. I got a handshake on the way out and I never invited back. Um, but, but listen, a religious spirit and a spirit of poverty are the same spirit because it's, it's zeal motivated by lack. A poverty mentality requires lack for motivation. My, my fervency in life is connected to what I'm missing, not what I have. Um, the spirit of poverty... Um, is more, it's not just money. It, it will manifest in money because where we directly equate value, but spirit of poverty directly influences the manner in which we steward anything in our possession. Our finances, our relationships, our time, our energy, our belongings, our, our, even our emotions, our relationships with the Lord, everything will be, if we're living from a religious spirit, um, how many of you guys know it might get you on fire quick? The fear of hell might get you on fire quick, but it won't burn long. It's a false fuel source. A poverty mindset is the belief that what you lack is more than what you have. It is the fear, I'm gonna write this down for us, it is the fear of not enough. It's living from the fear of not enough. That is what the religious spirit, you're not praying enough, you're not, you're not um, loving enough. You're not tithing enough. You're not giving enough. You're not worshiping enough. You're not, doing, you're not Bible reading enough. All of these things are lies from a religious spirit that will try to train you in a poverty mentality so that you're living from zeal that's motivated by not enough. Living from a constant fear. A poverty mentality. Let me be really quick. A poverty mentality will get you to normalize lack. It will get you to believe that our lack is normal and justified. How many of you guys know I, we, we got to stop normalizing lack and realizing this is, God's, this is not God's portion for my life? Living constant cycles of loss and issues that go on in our life. This is not God's portion for your life. He has, he has an abundance for you. And my prayer is, God, how do we partner with you? And we're going to get out of some of these lies and mindsets. And we'll, we'll get there in a second. I don't want anyone to start feeling like any shame because, because you've been operating from lack. I want, we're going to get there. Um, this is, this is going to be a good day for you. Um, it makes us critical. It causes us to be critical of those that have what we want and criticize uh, in that, uh, us, those that challenge us to do more with what we have. You know, that's the thing about it. It makes us so critical. Man, somebody has something that we want. We go like, yeah, but I'm sure that what they did, I wouldn't do what they did to get there. You know what I'm saying? It makes us somewhat critical of people that are beyond where we are instead of motivating us. I want to be inspired by people that have what I'm longing to have. 
not to be critical because a, a critical spirit will actually block any revelation, wisdom, or insight that somebody is. You know, a lot of young people uh, ha- really have a critical spirit and they, they won't listen to their elders. Like they won't respect older people and they'll just criticize them. I don't want to be you instead of like actually listening and engaging the revelation, the wisdom of got them where they are. We, we got we to gotta break that thing. It makes us complacent. We have to do something about our lack. You know, oftentimes we just sit around waiting for something to change, but we won't put movement to it. Uh, it causes us to operate from fear, fear that God isn't able or willing to bless us. How many of you guys know if you have fear around finances, around your time, around your family, uh, the presence of fear is evidence of a lie? And there's a lie that's actually accusing you uh, that you are not good enough to receive any of God's blessings. Some of you are like, I believe God's able, but I don't believe that I am a worthy investment. Right? It comes out sometimes when we have some sin in our life and then things get really crappy for a week and we go, oh, this was coming. Boom, right there. You just connected to difficulty in life as judgment and punishment for your sin. How many of you guys know that's the evidence of a lie? Um, it, I'm going to be, I'm sure be quicker. Um, stuck in patterns of loss, the time, energy, and the resources that we have preserved feel like they get stolen and fall away, but we don't know where it's all going. Um, the problem is, is that when we, when we operate from poverty, we hoard what we have. And if we hoard what we have, we block off God's um, divine wisdom and counsel to teach us how to actually walk in abundance. How many of you guys know in the kingdom that you, in order to reap, you have to sow? Right? And there's an invitation to generosity um, creates abundance. And so, but when we also begin to operate in fear and lack, we protect what we have. And when we protect what we have, and, and uh, we're going to be teaching a lot of these different verses, but in Malachi, it says that when you protect what you have, he says, you're cursed with a curse. Why? Because you've robbed me of tithes and offerings. How have you robbed me? You, you've held them. But I'm telling you, if you bring it to the house right now, I'll open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that you won't be able to handle it. Did God curse the nation of Israel? No, Israel cursed the nation of Israel. How do you say? Because they bound themselves to the failing economy of the world instead of bringing their household into the abundant provision of God. The curse isn't God coming after your finances. The curse is the world is falling apart and I want to live out from their economy and under heaven's economy. And the way that I live under heaven's economy is by living radically generous. Are we all right? In Romans 3.27, this is, this is the, the, the final thoughts. You guys okay? In, in Romans, in Romans uh, 3.27, it presents this idea that there's a law of works and there's a law of faith. Okay? The law of works, uh, law of works versus faith. The law of faith. Now, we're going to be talking just for a few minutes here on works versus faith. Works is this Old Testament idea that you had to perform for his favor and that you had to earn righteousness and that you had to earn blessing and that your, your, what God gave you was directly correlated to what you did to earn it. Your whole identity was connected to how you behaved and what you did. Whereas faith is entered into by grace. Grace is the unmerited, unearned favor of God. You didn't get it by what you did. You, get it, you got it from what he did and 
you receive the free reward of grace. And then because we're living in the unmerited, unearned favor of God on our lives, we live by faith, which means I'm going to enter into life with this like belief that God is going to step into everything I step into because it's not based upon what I've done, but what he's done. So I'm going to give everything that I have because I know that although my bank account says zero, his is endless. And I know that he's standing there with me. And I'm going to enter my faith that he's able to come behind all my movements and behaviors and actually bless it because I'm highly favored. It's making sense. It's probably incomplete way of saying it. But the law, the law of works is deeds motivated by lack. I'm seeking value and I'm seeking my identity by my behavior, whereas faith, uh, faith is rooted in favor and identity and in living a life that reflects the favor. How many of you guys know that you, you can tell when somebody um, has family money where somebody is, you know, doesn't. You know what I'm saying? Somebody that was born in wealth carries themselves differently than somebody who's fighting for their wealth. I'm saying that to say is that when you understand what you've been born, in, born again into, you will begin to live from a different reality instead of from works into faith. Um, another word for works because connected to the ultimate law is legalism. Legalism is living to find out who I am. It's, it's I'm going to let the situations of life define who I am and my performance to define who I am. But faith is living from who I am. Legalism says who I am will be determined by what I do. But faith defends who I am even when my situations and actions betray who I am. You know, isn't it incredible that because you, the spirit of God lives inside of you, because the blood of Jesus poured out for you, because you're born again, because of all of that, that there is actually this reality now on your life that even when your actions don't line up, you are more than a son than you are a slave. Even though you're acting like a slave, you're still a son. And it doesn't change. This is like the whole idea of the prodigal son is that a son left the father's house, behaved like a slave, but when he came back, he was still the son. But it was his favor with his father that invited him home and received the arms around his neck. Because his father's favor never changed. Legalism is trying to work for who I am where faith is living from who I am. When you enter into the law by works, you are a slave. And when you enter in by faith, you are a son. You can experience the same experiences in life, but from two different doorways. Now, let, let, me, let me explain. Imagine this room represents life. And you have the doorway of faith and you have the doorway of works. You are going to enter into your life either through faith or through works. You are going to walk into this room and experience this life from two different realities and Jesus has purchased for you to walk in by faith, but many of us are still entering in through works. And you experience the same room from two different realities. For a slave, life is a prison. But for a son, life is an opportunity. I'm going to say that again. 
For a slave, life is a prison. There's no authority, no control, no options, no choices, and you are working for your keep. But when you enter in through the door of faith, the unmerited, unearned favor of God, when you begin to understand what was purchased for you, you enter into life as a son and you recognize this life is an opportunity because of what has been placed inside of me. When you live by faith, you're in favor and wondering how you can influence from the favor that you have. Now, imagine this, there's a party going on because life is a party, right? Anybody feel like life is a party? Life is a party. If you enter as a slave, you're coming to serve everybody else's party. But if you enter in by faith, you're, you're coming in ready to influence the people that are in this room. When you come in, you are being influenced by the people in this room if you come in by works, but if you enter in by faith, you're coming in to influence the people in this room. This is, this is really important because this is where generosity flows from. It's not living to receive, it's living to give. It's not living to survive, it's living to influence. We have to understand that when the cross of Jesus Christ came into our hearts and he changed our identity, he, he changed our perception that we're no longer to live from the empty philosophies and deceit of our carnality and our humanity, but that we're actually supposed to live from an abundance of a new identity that identifies as a son who has all the resources in the world to influence the needs of the world around me. Because of all of this, we no longer experience life like we used to. Not a slave experiencing tribulation as some sort of punishment, but as sons experiencing tribulation as an opportunity. Romans 8 says, For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these ones are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified Together, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How many of you guys want to start looking at the sufferings of this present time through that lens? Only sons can see tribulation through that lens. Oh, wow. God, I know that if I'm walking through this, I have your favor. And if I'm walking through this, you're producing something in me that is eternal. And you, you, are, you are bringing, you are delivering me out of one place into another. And, and I, I, I want to be where you're bringing me, not where I've been. Uh, so I glory in tribulations because, of the, because of, I know that out of this is going to come so much more glory. Why? Because I have his favor. And if I'm going through this, it's only to produce something great. That's, that's good news. Only a son can get it. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope. Because, he, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. God has called you to influence and you influence from sonship. <clears throat> Colossians says you, you are complete, you lack nothing. And he says, don't let anyone cheat your reward. You are not supposed to identify with your lack, sinful, broken, sad, depressed, suffering, empty identity. You're supposed to identify as powerful, righteous, whole, victorious, 
the person who, who is hell's worst nightmare. Paul invites us in Romans 8, he invites us, stop associating with your lack. Start associating with your abundance. Stop associating with defeat. Start associating with victory. Stop associating with sin. Start associating with righteousness. Stop associating with death. Start associating with life. Stop living in so much vulnerability toward a religious spirit that is trying to get you to become a slave to the idea that you are lacking and start living from this abundant place of provision and realizing that your life is a gift to the world around you. And if you, if you have been, if you're in a work environment and your, 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 your boss is just a jerk to you all the time, stop looking at, I am so persecuted in my workplace. And start looking at it. I think that the spirit in me is causing the demons in him to get all upset. And I think I've been placed here to bring freedom and liberty to this person. This is awesome. You've been planted a family and the, and the family's raging. Did you know that in the times of conflict or family's raging or your marriage is raging and things are exploding right before your eyes? You're like, God, is we, are we going to make it? I bet you that God's shaking your marriage because the marriage that you had was not the fullness and he wants to bring you into a greater union with your spouse. And if he's shaking it and you're highly favored and you're victorious and you're a son, you should recognize the shaking is probably for greater glory and step into the shaking and go, God, don't stop shaking until we come out like you. Why? Because you've got, you've got to stop associating. Is it because I messed up? Is it because I'm bad? Is it because of sin? Is it because I'm not doing it right? Is it because I'm not performing? Is it not because of this? No, start associating with your highly favored. You're victorious. You are abundantly blessed. And God has so much more for you. And if he does, if he's shaking this, it's only because he has greater things for you. Stop resisting him and start partnering with him. Start thinking like a son and not a slave. Are we all right? Matthew 5, 10, Jesus said, Jesus said, uh, you know, blessed are you the poor in spirit for they shall see God. Blessed are the persecuted for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the righteous for they will be, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit for they'll be made clean. He goes down the line 13 times and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. Blessed are, are you know, uh, the peacemakers for they'll be called the sons of God. Blessed are, and he starts going down the line and a lot of it is really difficult things. And the thing that really stinks, a lot of people said, blessed are those who mourn. But they don't finish the statement because they associate with the brokenness, but they don't associate with the blessing. The poor in spirit are not blessed because they're poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are blessed because for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The, the, the pure in heart are not pure in heart, but blessed because they're pure in heart. They're, they're blessed because for they shall see God. Blessed are the persecuted, not because they're being persecuted, but because for theirs is the kingdom. There's this weird religious thing that goes, blessed are you who are poor. I just want to be poor. God hates wealth. It's such a stupid, weird, gross lie. You're not blessed because you're poor. You're blessed because you have a father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And when you steward little, he will give you much. Don't love money. Give the money back to the Lord entirely so that he can produce an abundance 
abundance of wealth through your life. Why? So that his righteousness could grow through your resources in the earth. In John 3.30, last, last verse. In John 3.30, um, uh, uh, John the Baptist prays his prayer. And they come to him, they go, John, Jesus is getting really famous. The disciples, Jesus is getting really famous. Everybody loves Jesus. And I'm a little worried because uh, people have stopped tithing to our church. And they're not coming to our meetings anymore. They're all going to Jesus. There's a new church in town. It's bigger than ours now. And, and John goes, you guys don't get it. I was an Old Testament prophet. And I was a friend of the bridegroom. And my job was to prepare the way for the bridegroom to come. The bridegroom has come. My job is done. And I say, blessed be the Lord for the bridegroom is here. And what you have to understand, it's time for me to decrease and it's time for him to increase. Good prayer, right? Did you know that you were never supposed to pray that prayer? Oh, we, we, we elevate that prayer. Lord, may I decrease, may you increase. What a righteous prayer by John the beloved. No, 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 no. That prayer was not for you. That was for an Old Testament prophet who needed to stop prophesying for the Messiah to come because the Messiah was here. He needed to decrease so the Messiah could, could increase and be seen and visible. There could be no contention in the covenants. But then Jesus died and he gave us a spirit. And they said, Jesus, don't go. And he says, better for you to go because I'll send you the Holy Spirit. And then he sends us the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew 28, he appears. He goes, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I now give it to you. Go make disciples of all nations. And Jesus says, it's time for my earthly ministry to decrease. But it's time for your ministry of the new covenant church to increase. Jesus didn't say, so decrease in the earth. He said, so go and increase in the earth. You're called to go. And we're not supposed to be a people that are decreasing, celebrating lack. We're supposed to be sons who understand that the abundance of the wealth of the Godhead dwells inside of me. I am complete and I don't see life as a threat. I see it as an opportunity. And I know what's in me is greater than what's in the world. And so I need to rush in. Yeah. I need to pour my life out. I know that $10, when it's given in the name of the Lord, could become a million. And I know that when my little acts of faithfulness, when I just choose to not go home, I choose to go to the hospital and take care of somebody, and I choose to love on my family, and I choose to deny this and do that, I know that my generosity is being multiplied because partnering with the Spirit of God. Are you guys getting it? Generosity is a new covenant core essential value that exemplifies the nature of the Father and will change the world. Why don't you guys stand with me?